0: Roll away your stone, I'll roll away mine Together we can see what we will find Don't leave me alone at this time For I'm afraid of what I will discover inside Close encounters with Jesus. Times in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus rubs shoulders with people like you and I, and uh, Luke gets really repetitive. And there's a reason Luke gets repetitive. You know, there's a reason elementary school teachers get repetitive. It's because you've got to know this kind of stuff. The stuff that they repeat over and over again, you've got to pay attention to. And so you're going to hear a lot of common themes throughout all the sermons we've been talking about. And don't hear that as time to tune out. Hear that as, oh, maybe I need to tune in more because God in his mercy keeps bringing that message uh, to our ears uh, over and over and over and over again. And so uh, tonight's going to be a little bit uh, like that. Uh, We're going to be talking about Luke 7, and I'm going to save the introduction for after. So go ahead and stand up, and uh, we will read this passage from Luke 7. It's in your bulletin. And this is the word of the Lord for you, where you are, as you are right now. Son of man has come, eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Or you could say the proof is in the pudding, uh, if Jesus is legit or not. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who is a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender, he had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, or a denarii is a day's wage, 500 wages, the other 50 days wages. When they couldn't pay, the moneylender canceled the debt of both of them. Now, which one do you think would love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears. She's wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Lord Jesus, uh, we do pray that you would um, help us to see you in a different way, in a new way tonight. All of us, would you do that? You know what parts of you we know, what parts we've seen, what parts we're blind to. And with, that, with each of us and our individual needs, we are all needy. Would you please meet us in those places? Let us see you more as you are. Let us be certain of the one who comes um, calling us out into the light. Uh, let us be certain of the one and certain of your words when you say over us, uh, you are forgiven. Uh, we pray that you would do this, that you would be the strong one. I am so weak. Uh, if it is up to me and my words, I have very little hope anything will happen. But if it is up to you, we have great expectation because you have a reputation of using weak people to do strong things. And so we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Everybody in the room in one way or another has a public person and you have a private person in a sense. Kind of the person that you're willing to let other people see, kind of the the presentable you, um, the the you that uh, you want other people to see you as. But then everybody also has a private self, right? An inner part of us. And that's the person, that's the part of me, the part of you, that I keep hidden in the shadows. That's the baggage I try to leave back in the closet. And I don't want you to know about it. Or if you get a glance on it, I want to kind of tweak it and spin it so that it sounds better than it really is. And that's... My, my inner self, my private person, the kind of the me that wants to live in a dark closet where none of you can see me as I really am, that part of me, I'd be ashamed if you saw. And I'd kind of lose control of what you think about me. And so I try to, uh, we try to keep that kind of person in the closet. This is the, kind of, this is the part of us that's not safe for the whole family. This is the part of our past we don't really talk about. This is the part of us we try to ignore. We don't even like God really dealing with us in these places. And all of us have that public person or that private person. The question isn't whether you have that dynamic going on in you. The question is how public is the stuff in the closet. How public is your private person, the person that's in the shadows. Um, Frederick Buechner, I quote him all the time. Same book I quoted last week. He's describing what kind of people sit in the pews next to us uh, every Sunday morning at church. And you could say the kind of people who are sitting to your left and to your right. Right now, but he gives, he paints this picture, and sometimes with, with Beakner, best to close your eyes and imagine the scene he's painting. He's an artist with his words. And this is, this is the picture that he paints of who's sitting in the pew on a Sunday morning people like you and like me. And he says this, kind of exposing the public and the private uh, uh, when we go out. He says this As surely as each of those people brings with them a Bible, they also brought with them their loves and their hates, their fears of death and their fears of life, their anxieties, their longings, their pride, their dark doubts. Each person carried his private world on his back the way a snail carries a shell. They're the fat ones and the thin ones, the old ones and the young ones, happy ones and sad ones. Some are bright, some aren't so bright. They also brought their worlds, their inside part of them. They brought that with them. And when they looked in the mirrors before Sunday service, they saw failures of faith, hope and love and failures of courage. And in the front pews, the old ladies turn up their hearing aids and a college sophomore home for vacation, who's there only because he was dragged to be there, slumps forward, bored with his chin on his hand. The vice president of a bank who'd been a member there 20 years, but in the past week has thought twice seriously about suicide. He puts his hymnal back on the rack, and a pregnant girl pregnant girl, feels the life stir inside of her, unbeknownst to anyone else. And the high school math teacher, who's been there forever, managed to keep his homosexuality a secret for the most part, even from himself, creases his bulletin and puts it under his knee. So that kind of gives you a different vantage point on what most of you in the room have experienced most Sundays of your life, kind of the, the clean, presentable church service, or RUF at Tuesday night, and Frederick Buechner comes in, and he looks past the public faces that we all bring, and he looks into the inner person, the thoughts, the fears, desires, stresses, despairs, that are stirring through your mind and your heart right now. And he looks right past that. So what if Buechner described what's uh, who comes to RUF on a Tuesday night? You get the picture, right? The public person, the inner person. And that's exactly what Luke is drawing our attention to in the passage. You have a picture here of a public of Simon, the Pharisee who presents himself a very clean, put together, good old, nice guy. And you have a picture of a woman who almost like she's not living her life hidden in the closet. She's been outed. Everybody knows her shame again, just like the paralytic small town, Israel. Everybody knows everybody word travels fast. She's the town hooker and everybody knows it. Everywhere she goes, there's murmurings. And so this is a woman who doesn't have the luxury like we do to live in the shadows. She's been dragged out for everybody to see. And so you have her kind of pulled out of privacy into the public. She can't control the stories about her anymore. And you have Simon, who's still very much in control of his public image. And so the, the three things we're going to talk about tonight are what life is like inside the closet, particularly through Simon. Simon. Because uh, Luke gives us a lot more details about what that's like for Simon than he does about what it's like for the woman. The second thing is this. Uh, We will never come out of our closets. Those shadows and the shade that we hide in so other people can't really see us as we really are. We'll never move out of that into the light unless you know exactly what kind of Jesus is on the other side of the door. You'll never open the door. And the third thing is that experience of Jesus coming into the closet, into those dark places that we tend to do life, when he comes there to meet you there and cleanses you and cleans you and says, come out, that so deeply changes you that that your relationships begin to change and your love for other people isn't self-focused, it's self-forgetful. And so that's the third point um and those those are the three things we'll look at pretty quickly but the the first point is this and by the way excuse the metaphor of coming out of the closet i use it intentionally we'll unpack that in a minute both the way our culture uses the term but also in a good way the way we can use the term of coming out of the shadows and being honest owning up to who we really are what we're really like and what kind of god we really do need and so that's the first point if you live your life in the closet in the dark hiding in the shadows managing the private side of you that no one else gets to see, if you live your life in that kind of closet, life is the very thing you're never going to find. Which sounds counterintuitive, right? Sounds paradoxical. Well, it is. Because the reason so many of us go back to privacy, we run back to those closets so often, and our prayer requests become, help me, I'm struggling with lust. But we don't really ever tell anybody what that means. Or help me, I'm struggling with anxiety. But we never tell anybody what that really means. Um, we're managing that image. And the, the only way... And the, the reason we manage that image is because we feel more in control, right? We feel like my life will be better if I manage what you do know about me and what you don't. If I can control what parts of me are private, what parts of me are public for everybody to see. I feel like I can protect my life, preserve my life, promote myself. Because you'll see me as the person I want you to see me as, right? Right? Not the person that I really am. But when we try to, to latch down and control our image in that way, we end up squishing all the oxygen, all the life out of our relationships, and we squeeze it out of ourselves too. And so the very, the very thing we pursue, which is life, is the very thing uh, we never find uh, in those places. Now, the way we're going to see this in the passage, and, and by the way, keep this out from you, uh, keep the, uh, the text out in front of you because there's going to be a lot of points where I want you to see this for yourself in the passage, not just take my word for it, but to follow along and to see where this is coming from in the passage. But Simon the Pharisee, a guy who loses the very life he seeks to protect, a clean guy. What does it mean that he says he's a Pharisee? Because Luke says it the first few verses. Why does Luke repeat it four times in three verses that this guy is a Pharisee? That's probably an important part of the story, right? If you know much about the Bible or if you've been around the past few sermons, you get it. Pharisees, these are the legit guys. They're the ones who are serious about their walk with God. Serious about their faith. They don't piddle around. They don't cut corners. They're truly devoted. They're people you would want to be like if they were around today. And Simon is a Pharisee. He's a good guy. He's a nice guy. He's the kind of guy who invites guys over for dinner. Hey, why don't you come over to my place for dinner? He says that to Jesus. He has some other people over there too. He's a nice guy. He's a good guy. And Simon knows he's a sinner, right? The passage doesn't say it. But if this is like the most diligent of the religious people in Israel, where do you think he is every time he sins? He's at the temple taking a sacrifice, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he sacrifices the dove, or he sacrifices the lamb, or, or uh, at different times, the priest sacrifices a bull on his half. The guy knows he's a sinner. It's not like Simon is saying, living in the closet saying, I'm not a sinner, I'm a righteous man. No, he's saying I'm an unrighteous man. But the question is this, which Simon goes to the temple to make a sacrifice? Public? Presentable? Clean? Not really messed up sinner Simon? Or... Dysfunctional to the core, Simon. Relationally broken to the core, Simon. Desperately needy of his God, Simon. Which one of those went and made sacrifices? You get the point? Public Simon, presentable Simon, was the one that went and did all of that. And so he's completely out of touch with who he really is. Jesus knows who he is. The woman finds out who he is. We know who he is. But Simon doesn't really know who Simon is because he's blind to himself like that. And... You might be able to think, this is a pretty clean guy, unless you're able to take a peek in his closet. And isn't that exactly what Luke does? Or better yet, isn't that exactly what Jesus does? Reads his mind, tells us what he's thinking, and for all of eternity now, Simon's thoughts are recorded on paper for all of us to take a peek at too. And what are those thoughts? I think it's in uh, verse 39 when uh, when Jesus gives us uh, exactly what Simon was thinking about uh, in that moment. He says he he sees himself fundamentally different than this woman who is a quote-unquote sinner, which they repeatedly call her. If Jesus knew what sort of woman, what kind of woman that was, that she's a sinner, he wouldn't have anything to do with her. He wouldn't touch her. He'd be made unclean. Simon thinks he's better than her, and he thinks he's better than Jesus, too. When does he throw Jesus under the bus? When Jesus apparently can't tell that she's a hooker. And so he's like, well, obviously, though I thought this man was a prophet, a really, really important prophet. He's obviously not because he can't even connect the dots that this is this is the town prostitute. And if he can't tell that, he's obviously not a prophet. And so he begins to distance himself from Jesus anymore. Jesus earlier was a quick ticket to status and importance and validation, but all of a sudden now, Jesus is dispensable, just like this woman is dispensable. And so he tends to discard them both in his mind, only that Jesus knows what he's doing in his mind, and he calls him out. And so if you add all of this up, you get a, viv- a pretty vivid picture of what it might be like for us, for Simon, to live life in the closet, where you can't talk about the way you really are. You can't come to RUF and say, my days sucked. Or I'm a worship leader and I don't feel prepared at all. Or I'm a preacher and I struggle to believe everything I'm writing down. You don't get to talk about that if you're always trying to manage your public picture. Uh, And you can't share your private person. You can't come out of the closet uh, as it were. The gist of it is this. It's a life dominated by thinking about yourself. Everything in your life traces back to what does this mean for me? Every relationship, every interaction you have, everything you're asked to do, every social event you're invited to, what's in it for me? That's what life in the closet's like. It always comes back to you, and that's suffocating. It's narcissistic, but we feel it, don't we? We feel the death that it brings. We feel the claustrophobia of not being able to be real with anybody. We feel the hollowness of being fake with people. Of trying to keep up appearances that I'm a good guy who generally makes good decisions and you should respect me. That takes a lot of effort, doesn't it? We're all experts at it. I'm an expert at it. We know what that feels like. And it feels that way for Simon too. We make other people objects just like Simon made Jesus and the woman an object. Pawns in his little kingdom. He needed Jesus at first, but as soon as Jesus became unneeded... He, he tossed him to the side. As soon as the woman became needed, he tossed her to the side. And so he thought he was getting life. He thought he was managing his life, controlling his life, controlling what they thought about him. And the very thing that Simon doesn't get is life. What, what do you think it would like to be married to Simon if you're his wife? What do you think it would be like to be his kids? What do you think it would be like to be one of his friends? Do you ever really know Simon? Is it ever really Simon who's interacting with you? Or is it pretender Simon? The Simon he wants you to see and wants you to know because he can't risk coming out of the closet. Because if he does, and you see him as he is, he's no longer in control. And you can reject him. And you can say he's unimportant. And you can say he doesn't have status. Or whatever his, whatever his heart is attached to, you can sever the link between that. And so he's not going to risk it. And so his friends don't even know him. He doesn't know himself, obviously. His wife probably doesn't even know him. There's distance between all of them. He thinks he's getting life. He's getting death. Because the real Simon, the private Simon, is a hermit and never leaves the house. He can't risk going out in public for the reasons I just said. We can all relate to that, right? Either we're literally, we can't leave our house because we're terrified of what others might think about us or say about us or the way they might take the precious things of us and start tinkering with them in a way that threatens us. Or part of us, we leave at home. We kind of make a conspiracy with ourselves. We have an agreement with ourselves. I'm just not going to talk about this whole area of my life. Uh, Except life isn't what we get there. Tim Keller, in a book that's a good complement to this passage, it's called Freedom from Self-Forgetfulness. And it's a lot about what our third point is about in the sermon. He quotes Madonna in an interview uh, a few years ago when Madonna was talking about how difficult it is to live life in between the private Madonna who stays in her closet in the dark because she's terrified. If you see that Madonna, what you will think the tension between living of that Madonna and the Madonna on stage that all of us know. And some of us love, I'm not one of them, but uh, she's, she's a fine person. I just don't like her music. My wife does, but this is what Madonna says. My drive My ambition comes from a fear of being seen as mediocre, public person. I can't risk being seen as mediocre. That's always pushing me, the drive to not be seen as mediocre. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. People give me a claim, but then I feel I'm still mediocre. It wears off, and I'm uninterested, uninteresting, unless I do something else big. Might explain why she's done so many crazy things, always trying not to be mediocre. But even though I've become somebody, a celebrity, I still have to prove every time that I'm still somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. He said, My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. That's a woman who's stuck between private and public between the closet and coming out of the closet, but she can't come out of the closet because if she does, you'll think she's mediocre and it's an exhausting life because every show she has to one up herself. Can you relate to that in our own little places? We're not celebrities. Can you relate to always having to one up your last performance, your last conversation so that people will still think you're insightful in the Bible studies or to keep your girlfriend or your boyfriend interested in you? Or one day your husband or your wife interested in you. To one up your other co-workers so that you'll be a valuable employee who gets to stay around. Always having to perform. For some of us, performing for God too. You're only as good as your last performance. And if you screw up, you've got to go back to back to the drawing board and start all over. That's an exhausting life, isn't it? If you're aware of it, it gets really claustrophobic. And you want out. You want to get out of the closet. You want to escape, but most oftentimes we can't. Here's why. Because one desire overrules our desire to get out. So we have a desire to escape and to come out into the freedom and the light and just own up and say, okay, I'm as bad as you think I am. I'm worse. I'm a mess. I'm a train wreck. I'm not the way I'm supposed to be. But our desire to be accepted, to be in control, to be worth it to somebody to be clean, to be respected, to be honored, to have influence. That desire wins out over the desire to get out of the claustrophobia of living in the closet. And so a lot of times we just resign ourselves. We make do. We learn to live in it. Uh, And Jesus, by his grace, comes to that closet door and starts knocking. Now, here's where I need to nuance something because this is where the metaphor uh, takes a divergent turn. Our culture uses the same language of coming out of the closet. It's kind of a caricature of Christian confession. And it's kind of become a public ritual these days. Uh, Every few months, somebody else is coming out and they go on all the news stations. But here's the big difference of a biblical coming out of the closet, owning in the light who you really are and owning that you really do need grace. You're the kind of sinner who needs a God who died for him or for her. That's a biblical coming out. The cultural coming out isn't an admission of humility at all. It's, a, it's an assertion of self-righteousness. It's this is who I am. You better accept me. It's not have mercy on me because of who I am. It's you better you better accept me the way I am. And it's not an admission of weakness. It's an admission of strength. This is good. This isn't bad. Um, and it's an admission of, uh, it, it's, a re- it's a rejection of, that you're a sinner, just like Simon, in the way that really matters. Because it's saying, well, God made me this way. Uh, I didn't choose this. And I'm wondering, what if the prostitute in this story had, had gone by that advice? What if people had said, hey, Sally, whatever your name is, uh, why would you have such a strong sex drive if God didn't make you to be a prostitute? You know, different strokes for different folks. God made you this way. You should stop resisting, stop fighting. That's why you're so exhausted. Come out of the closet, celebrate it, own it, walk around proud. Don't let it be a source of weakness. Let it be a source of strength. That's what cultural coming out is. It's self righteousness masked in, um, masked in humility, and that's not what we're talking about. And so we have to distinguish the two things as we move into the as we move into the second point. But that kind of coming out just trades one form. Of hiding in the closet for another. The devil will murder you on both sides of the spectrum just as fine. He's happy to go into the closet with you and say, God will never accept you with this struggle. You should be ashamed of yourself. You can never let anybody know or everybody will reject you. The devil's fine saying that to you in the closet. Particularly with a struggle like homosexuality. But he is just as okay to come on the other side of the door and say, yes, own it. It's not sin. Run with it. Stick it to God. Or whatever else. He will murder you here. And he will murder you here. And he doesn't care the difference. Why does it matter to him? A dead guy in a closet or a dead guy outside of the closet? But Jesus comes to people like that. And I say people like us. Because everybody in the room can relate to struggles you didn't ask for. Sins you were born with an inclination towards. uh, Stuff that's the monkey on your back. And it's never going to fall off it seems like. And you fight tooth and nail every day. The question for you and me is what kind of God comes to the door and knocks? Who's on the other side? And that's the second point. Only if you know who Jesus is and what he's like and that he's on the other side of the door on the closet that we run back to and hide. Will you ever unlock the door? Because if he's the God of judgment, if he's the God who comes with a chorus of others and points his finger and shames you. Why would you ever come out? Why would you ever show the judge your rap sheet if that's what he's going to do? But if this is a Jesus who looks upon this woman with her past, with her baggage, with her history, with her private areas that she didn't want anyone to know about, and he shows mercy to her there, she can actually, she's free to come out. Uh, And this is the point. If you're like me, maybe you've read this passage a lot of times and you thought, Oh, this is a story about a woman, a stranger, busting in on a dinner party. And Jesus is like, Oh, good to meet you. I'm Jesus. I'm Sally. Uh, you're forgiven. This, clearly, it's not the first time Jesus has met this lady. Uh, it doesn't explain why she would just barge in. It doesn't explain why she would just start crying at the sight of Jesus. And it doesn't explain why Jesus says, uh, literally uh, around verse uh, 47, 48... He doesn't just say your sins are forgiven. Literally, he says your sins have been forgiven. Your sins were forgiven. And so at some point in this lady's story, she's bumped into Jesus. And for the first time, this man, God, didn't look at her like all the other customers or all the other men did. They didn't look at her for what she could do for them. He didn't look at her as a piece of trash like Simon looked at her. He looked at her as a person. And he apparently went up and talked to her. Because something very big happened in her life because of it. Jesus sees her as a person. He goes to the door and he says, knock. You ever heard the passage when Jesus says in Revelation 3, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever answers, I will come in. What's he say after that? And I will eat with you like a friend. Behold, I stand at your door that you keep running behind. The closet we keep running back into. And I knock. And whoever answers, I will come where I'll pull you out immediately. No, I will go in to the shameful place, to the dark place, to the private place that you're terrified of anyone seeing. He'll come in that as a friend. Here's the kind of God that's on the other side of your door and my door. It's essential that you know this. He's the God of Exodus 34. He's gracious, compassionate, slow when it comes to anger, lightning fast. When it comes to mercy, He's the God who's committed to your freedom deeply. He's the God who binds up the brokenhearted, releases the captives. Remember the first sermon, Isaiah 61. He is gentle. He doesn't break a bruised reed and He doesn't snuff out a smoldering wick, but He's careful, careful, careful. He's the friend of sinners, the very first verse right here. And He's a God who isn't embarrassed to be known as the friend of sinners. He's committed to satisfying you with good things. Psalm 145, he's committed to your joy and your gladness. Psalm 104, he gave wine for the gladness of man's heart. He's in control even of your sin. He says he will always provide you a way out. He will never let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He is sympathetic, he is empathetic, which is much better than sympathy. Sympathy stands from far away and says, I guess I can imagine what it must be like to be in your shoes. Empathy says, I've walked 10 miles in your shoes. The one who stands on the other side of the door calling you back out into the light has walked in your shoes in every way except sin, which is a, which is a fancy way of saying he's still able to do something about it. He's not incapacitated like the rest of us. Look, here's the point. Romans 2.4, uh, Paul says, do you not know? That is the kindness of God that's designed to lead you to repentance. It's the mercy, the forbearance, the patience of God that's intended to lead you to unlock the door. God woos you out of the closet. He persuades you. He beckons you. He, He convinces you. He doesn't shout and he doesn't come in like the SWAT team and blow the door down. But he stands outside and he knocks. You have got to know Who's knocking or you'll never open the door. And so that's the woman. That's the God that knocked on this sinful woman's heart. uh, And it changed her forever. And so Jesus goes into those places. And this is a big thing before we finish up on the last point. This is huge. That Jesus comes into the closet with us. And that is where he forgives us. You know, a lot of times when we're we're welcoming you to RUF, we say this is a place where you can be who you are, where you are. We don't say that because we're trying to be like manipulative and make you feel falsely safe. We say that because that is what God says to you. He is a God who comes to you where you are. And unfortunately, where we are is usually a pretty dark, pretty hard place. And Jesus comes into the closet with you. That's how you come out. He's not the God who says, here's some techniques for coming out of closets. Here's some techniques for being a public sinner who actually needs your friends to pray for you for specific reasons. Here's a person who, when people see you, say, ah, they need Jesus really bad. How do you ever have the freedom to do that? Not by yourself. God has to come in with you, take you by the hand, and say, count to three. We're coming out together. Not to celebrate our sin but to humble ourselves and to come into freedom. Here's how I see this from the passage. This talk about ointment and perfume. This woman's a hooker. She's probably been a hooker ever since she was able to be a hooker. And perfume for a hooker in an age where there's no showers and deodorant and anything else. What do you think perfume is used for by hookers? It's a tool of her trade. It makes the the act a little bit more pleasant for people who smell really bad. And where do you think that she got the money to buy the ointment that she rubs all over God himself in the flesh? Turning tricks. This is not honest cash. Here's the question. Here's the point. Jesus walks into that house, God in the flesh, and he walks out of that house smelling like a cheap hooker. Let that sink in, because I told you earlier, if we don't know what kind of God is on the other side of the door, beckoning us out every day, you'll never open the door. Is he a God willing to smell like you in your worst places? Or is he a God like Allah or like gods of other religions that would never dare get messy in the nitty gritty of the dirt of life? And so he stays far away. Or is he the God who comes near, the God who comes into the closet to liberate you and to help you come out of it and to actually bring your real self to God and to your neighbor? Not like Simon, who showed up as a pretender, but to bring your real self to RUF, your real self to Bible study, your real self to prayer with the Lord. God is willing to smell like this woman. He's willing to smell like you. He's willing to smell like the people Uh, He forgives. The moneylender, you know, he gives the the parable about the moneylender. Who takes the hit for the canceled debt? Two people. One has about a year and a half's worth of salary. The other has about a month and a half's worth of salary. Both of them, their debts are canceled. Who takes the hit? Two people leave skipping away in joy, and one person leaves absolutely saddled with debt. One person pays the bill. The reason Emily read 2 Corinthians 5 earlier, it's a great passage for you to go read, is because it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for you so that you might become the cleanness, the righteousness, purity, holiness, goodness of God. He smelled like you so that you could smell like him. And that's the point. He doesn't just end up smelling like us. We begin to smell like him. Simon got it all wrong. Simon looked at that woman and said, he doesn't know who she is because if he did, he'd know, push her away. She's dirty. Jesus knew exactly who the woman was. He wasn't ashamed to let her wash his feet, let down her hair, dry his feet, and anoint his feet. He wasn't ashamed of that. Simon would have been scandalized by it. He wasn't ashamed. Pope Francis... uh, said a lot of really important and surprising things when he was first established as a new pope uh, about, about a year ago. He wrote a letter to all of the Catholic priests aclo- across the world, uh, and he said uh, he basically said this: If you are a priest, you 're a shepherd, and shepherd shepherds smell like their sheep.' And if you stay far off removed from your people in your office doing your little studies and collecting little trinkets, you are not with the sheep and you've stopped smelling like the sheep. But a shepherd smells like a sheep. And this is a passage that says in the most beautiful way, Jesus, as the good shepherd, smells like his sheep. And that's something that gives us great courage. As we hear him knocking, even tonight, for the first time for you or for the 10,000th time for you. Which pushes us to our very brief last point. Because the parable alone is so clear and so simple and so applicable to our lives. When Jesus says, he who is forgiven much loves much. Uh, and so we'll be very brief at this last point. But we don't, Jesus doesn't just begin to smell like us. We begin to smell like him. He begins to rub off on us. The way he loves, the way he forgives... The way he comes into the closet and says, you're clean. And so that when we come out in his eyes, we are perfectly clean, spotless, good. That kind of forgiveness is what actually frees us. That is what frees us from thinking about ourselves all the time. Because when God himself has seen you as you are and he doesn't turn his head and he doesn't pinch his nose. And he doesn't run away and he doesn't backhand you, but he stoops down and moves towards you. That transforms you. You can't, you can't get up after that and look down your nose at other sinners like Simon does. But it absolutely transforms you and it takes your mind off of yourself. You're no longer in the closet passing everything through the filter of houses affect me. But Emily read it earlier. We no longer live for ourselves, but live for the one who gave himself for us. And it gives you this just reckless freedom to say, you know what? I don't care what I think about me. It doesn't matter what I think about me anymore. And it doesn't matter what you think about me anymore. It doesn't matter what the world thinks about me anymore. The one whose opinion matters has seen me at my worst. And he said, I'm not ashamed to call you friend. And I'm not ashamed to be associated with you. And I'm not ashamed to smell like you. And I'm not ashamed to make you smell like me. And so it changes uh, the way we love. It becomes a self-forgetful kind of love that's no longer a slave, but is free. And it puts a new engine in our ability to love other people. How do you know if you're loving well? How do you know if um, if you are awake to all that Jesus has done for you and forgiving you? Well, he says it. Do you love your roommates? Do you love your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Do you love your parents? Do you love your your siblings? Nobody in the room is going to be able to say, I love well. Uh, And so this sends us back to Jesus again, desperate like we talked about last week. Jesus help me to love better. But the way we do that, if you want to know how do I love my roommates better? How do I uh, have more joy in the gospel, How do I love Jesus more robustly? He sends you back to look in the closet and to remember what life was like and to remember how he met you in that and continues to meet you in that without ever rolling his eyes. But we'll go back with you as many times as you run back there and we'll bring you out again. How do we know we're prideful? Are you defensive? Do you argue with everybody once they see you as you really are? No, 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 it's not like that. You don't understand. What are you defending? You're defending your righteousness. Me defending my righteousness. Me defending my public perception. Because I don't want you to see my private. What would it look like for you to have a reckless freedom because if Jesus has seen the good, the bad, and the ugly and has said over you, I forgive you, uh, go in peace. What would it look like for you to live in peace, coming in and out of the closet without fretting, to not be paralyzed, but to be able to come out and learn what life looks like on the outside. Let's pray that he would help us to do this. Let's pray that he would trust us of who's on the other side of the door knocking. Let's pray that we Christians who keep running back into the closet would begin to stay outside and let other people see us as we really are so that Jesus gets the glory of being a very big savior for very big sinners. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do pray all of the things I just said. Uh, We pray that, Holy Spirit, you would push deep into our hearts your word. Even uh, engage our emotions, our thinking, our mind, our bodies in what we've heard tonight. uh, So that we might begin to relate to you differently. And like this woman who at some point had to wrestle with the question, who is this Jesus talking to me? And either had to choose. To come out and to let you see her as you already saw her, or to hide again? Would we begin to be people who live before you transparently, not afraid of you, uh, trusting in your merciful response to us? And would we love other people better because of that as well? We ask all of this in your name.